previously on Paranorm Girl. Poltergeists who cause mischief and incubi and succubi who stimulate lust or perversion. Sexually charged, rapey type demons, but maybe not all bad according to some or all that one-sided. People who wanna get it on with a ghostly presence, you're on deck. The term nightmare itself is derived from Mara, which is a Scandinavian term referring to an actual spirit sent to torment sleepers. And his name is Zozo, the famous Ouija board demon. I think it's totally within the realm of possibility that if you should try a summoning for yourself, you may indeed get a response. Most anyone following the Christian faith today will tell you that Lilith does not exist, never existed, mother of demons or nah. Hebrew mythology has her as the queen to the king of all demons, Asmodeus, who is up next in part two. You ever seen a ghost? Been abducted? Heard your name whispered from the other room when you're all alone? No, you say? Me either. But if you're like me, you're still fascinated by the paranormal. It seems everyone else has had an experience, and you want to believe it all. So why doesn't it happen to us? What does it all mean? How does it work? Is any of it real? Welcome to Paranorm Girl, a show that will attempt to answer these questions by taking the paranormal completely apart in search of proof. I'm not a blind believer, nor a hardened skeptic. I'm just looking for answers and willing to accept what I find. Welcome back, y'all. I am your host, Kristen. No time for the dilly-dally, folks. We are jumping right in. So, last time, we left off with Lilith, in some traditions being considered the queen to the king of all demons, Asmodeus. In this episode, we are going to be working through seven names commonly thought to be the seven princes of hell. Asmodeus is the first prince of hell we will be discussing. As I said, he is considered the king of demons, and with a few of these guys, you might get the sense of a bit of a hierarchy going on in the underworld. According to a story in the Book of Tobias, which Roman Catholics should be more familiar with, Asmodeus fell in love with a woman named Sarah and became very jealous and territorial, to the point that he would not allow her to marry any man. Every time she tried to take a husband, this jealous demon would come and take the man's life. That was until Tobias came along and, thanks to advice from an angel, drove the demon out for good. Aww, poor Asmodeus. He doesn't understand that that wasn't a healthy relationship. What do you expect when you yourself come from a broken home and unholy union? According to the Testament of Solomon, Asmodeus is the offspring of a lusty human maiden and the fallen angel Shamdon, which ties Asmodeus to the class of fallen angels called the Watchers. And him being the offspring of these unions makes him a Nephilim? It all gets kind of confusing very quickly, so we will cover those concepts later on if we have time. There are a few Talmudic legends surrounding this entity that I think are important to point out. While in the book of Tobias, he was considered one of the worst of all of the demons. In Talmudic legends, not so much, repeatedly featuring as a light and humorous type fellow. His only similarity to the Tobias incarnation is his lusty nature, as in the Talmud, he is going pretty hard after King Solomon's wives. 
Now, in Islamic legend, there are a couple of really interesting bits. Number one, he is labeled as the king of the jinn. Heads up, that is another strange connection we could make. We already know Rosemary Ellen Guiley believed the jinn to be the mother of all paranormal connections. And two, Islamic legend has Asmodeus marrying Lilith, making her queen of demons. There you go. To wrap Asmodeus up, here are some quickfire facts pew, pew, about this infernal lord. In the Dictionnaire Infernal by demonologist Colin DePlancy, he is described as having the breast of a man, a cock leg, a snake as his tail, three heads. One is a sheep, one's a bull, and one is a man spewing out fire. Oh yeah, he rides a lion with a long scaly neck and dragon wings. He is... The demonic version of pin the tail on the donkey. Asmodeus is the commander of 72 legions of demons. His powers are at peak strength in November. He is an Aquarius, according to some demonologists in the 16th century, and he hates water and birds because they remind him of God. And, according to numerous sources, he is a noted incubus. See? Seems nobody can agree who or what the incubi or succubi are, let alone what a demon is. Moving on. Leviathan, second prince of hell we're covering. His primary sin is envy. His name means twisted and coiled, and he is mentioned five times in the Christian Bible. At first and simple glance, Leviathan is a sea monster, hellish, beastly, violent. At last and long glance, definitely connected to water, definitely a sea serpent and symbol of God's power of creation. He first appears in the pre-biblical Mesopotamian myths and ends in Psalms 74:14, when God finally kills him and serves his meat as food to the Hebrews. Um, it is rumored Leviathan is a plagiarized version of the Babylonian and Sumerian beast Tiamat, I hope I'm saying that right, a, a goddess of the sea and symbol of the chaos of primordial creation. The truth is that the deeper that you look, the more you are going to see the dozens of interpretations throughout the differing religions and folklores. In the 1200s, St. Thomas Aquinas described Leviathan as the demon of envy. In 1589, German bishop, theologist, and witch hunter Peter Binsfeld published an influential list of demons and their associated sins called Binsfeld's Classification of Demons, which we are working off of right now, currently. This list associated Leviathan with envy as well. Why are we using this list? Because it definitely played its part in influencing the Christian idea of the demon. The word Leviathan would later come to be used as a term for great whale or sea monsters in general. And in modern times, it can refer to any sea monster, great whale, as it was in Moby Dick, or as a reference to the element of water or direction of west, as it is noted in the Satanic Bible by Anton LaVey. Next up, let's talk Mammon and Belphegor. Third and fourth princes of hell we are covering. The demons of greed and sloth, respectively. In Hebrew, mammon means money. So that's one way, I guess, for your pursuit of wealth to mean evil things, is to name your literal money after a demon, or vice versa. And when we look at 
many, 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 did I, did I say many? I meant many interpretations and translations of that word mammon. They do all mean something along the lines of wealth, money, riches, that sort of thing. Mammon in a lot of early translations seems to simply be this idea of people's equating wealth with greed and greed with sin. Up until Milton's Paradise Lost, when he actually gives some kind of anthropomorphic personification, calling Mammon a fallen angel who values earthly treasure over all other things. The only way I have found him anywhere to be described was in likeness to a wolf, which I rebuke here. It was only in likeness to one. Even when you Google image mammon, he still comes up as, you know, many, many renditions of a some slimy human-type character. So, you know, leave the wolves out of this. They're, they're amazing creatures, as are all animals. Uh, Belphegor, the demon of sloth, or vanity sometimes, too. Unfortunately, looks like another case of plagiarism, as Belphegor seems to have originally been considered a god to the Moabite people, a West Semitic group who lived just east of the Dead Sea during the 9th century BCE. Belphegor, the god, was bastardized and demonized in those early biblical days so that the children of Israel would not doubt or turn away from this new idea at the time that there was only one God, and that was Yahweh. After he became a demon, the role he plays in the downfall of Christians takes a few creative turns. Supposedly, he helps people make discoveries, seducing them by suggesting to them ingenious inventions that will make the person rich. Not sure how that is a bad thing or linked to slothiness, but Let's not get caught up in the details. Binsfeld believed Belphegor tempted by means of laziness. Hmm, getting warmer? According to the Dictionnaire Infernal by Colin de Plancy, he was hell's ambassador to France and hides out in the Louvre Museum. That is mighty specific. A for creative effort. One last bit of information on Belphegor that I thought was rather interesting and wanted to share. He is actually the main character in a story published by Niccolo Machiavelli in 1549. Its original Italian title is Il Demonio che prese moglie. Fellow duolinguists translate in English, The Devil Who Took a Wife, or The Devil Takes a Wife. Right away, it made me think of uh, Meet Joe Black. Great movie. It ends up being nothing like that film, just made me think of it. So, in Machiavelli's story, Pluto the god of the underworld, starts noticing that the men who are arriving in hell, they're all complaining about how unhappy their wives made them in their lives. After speaking with the government of hell, uh, they all decided it's best to send the former archangel turned archdevil Belphegor up to earth to investigate. Belphegor heads on up to earth, assuming a human form with a hundred ducats in his pocket. He takes a wife and quickly finds, due to her wasteful spending habits, due to her vanity, and due to the demands of her needy relatives, he's reduced to absolute poverty. He spends some time running from his creditors and imprisonment until he's rescued by a peasant. In thanks for rescuing him, he grants the peasant the power to drive devils out of possessed women. And finally, we see Belphegor returning gratefully back to hell, denouncing the institution of marriage. Thought that was a, a fun little way to wrap up this Prince of Hell. Demons are fun. 
Beelzebub is the fifth prince of hell I will be discussing. Ever heard of him? Now, surprisingly, Beelzebub is only interchangeable or synonymous with Satan within the Christian theology, specifically in the Old Testament. Within Christian demonology, which confusingly is the study of demons from a Christian point of view based primarily on the Bible, scripture, and philosophy, he is his very own entity with a varied and colorful story. Definitely considered one of the seven main princes of hell by Binsfeld, separate from Satan, separate from Lucifer. And if we go one step further outside of this box, this entity has an incredibly big and fantastical story. Beelzebub rules gluttony, the fifth of the seven deadly sins. He has many variations and spellings of his name, which contributes to this entity's varied history spanning the books. He is referred to as the Prince of Demons, Governor of Hell, the Devil's Chief of Staff, and Supreme Chief of the Infernal Empire, among other titles. In the Testament of Solomon, he self-identifies as the ruler of all demons. Wonder what Asmodeus would have to say about that? Or Satan? Hmm. In Hebrew, a variation of his name is translated to mean Lord of the Flies. But this might be because he was originally a god idolized by the Canaanites, and since there can be no other god but Yahweh, his name might have been distorted from its original spelling that meant something closer to Lord of the Divine Abode or Lord of the Heavens. Generally, when this demon is artistically rendered, he either manifests as a giant, nasty fly or some gluttonous, swollen monster on a throne with giant nostrils, horns, bat wings, duck feet, a, a lion's tail, and he's covered in black fur. In the Testament of Solomon, Beelzebub claims it is in his power to destroy tyrants. Why is that a bad thing? I don't know. Uh, he can also cause men to worship demons, arouse sexual desire in priests, cause war, instigate murders, and arouse jealousy. Along with gluttony, he is the demon of luck, money, and prosperity. Thought that was Mammon's job, but never mind. While most demonic hierarchy resources have him under the command of Satan, there's an interesting account of B-Dog that comes from an apocryphal text called the Gospel of Nicodemus. In this account, Beelzebub actually comes to rule hell after Satan tries to bring Jesus down in revenge for all of the times Jesus thwarted him on earth. Bubsy begs Satan to rethink, but to no avail. As soon as Jesus arrives, he's all too powerful trampling all over Satan and setting a bunch of imprisoned saints free to go on up to heaven. At this point, Satan is like, Oh, my bad, man. I'm forever under your dominion now, buddy. Take the throne. And so Bubsy did. This demon also has purportedly played a major role in notable possessions and exorcisms throughout history often blamed for these demonic possession cases. Among them, the Ludan possessions, the ones taking place in Aix-in-Provence, and the possession of Anna Eklund, which was a notorious case in the early 20th century when supposedly B-dubs 
took over this girl's body at the behest of her father in retaliation for not entering an incestuous relationship with him. And I think I might be Mandelaing myself with this one, too, because I swear I saw a movie within the last couple of years that sounds similar to a plot like this. Like, it takes place back in the olden days. Um, but I, I don't know. Google is turning up nothing. If that sounds familiar to anyone listening, please shoot me a message. It is driving me crazy. All right. Second to last Prince of Hell we shall discuss today is Satan, baby. Gonna do something different with this one. Before I did the research on this cat, I jotted down all of the things I thought I already knew about him. And I'm gonna read that to you now. Definitely embarrassing myself with how little I knew and how wrong I was. So here we go. Satan is the ruler of hell, prince of darkness, likes to possess people, hates God, fallen angel, led all of the other angels, fallen angels in rebelling, is Lucifer? Yes, I did. I did purposely make that a question. I didn't know. Uh, called Old Scratch. Tricked Adam and Eve as a snake. Is a half goat person. I'm awesome. Jesus, I'm awesome. Uh, Redskin. <laughs> Duh. Uh, evil with horns and hooves. Trickster and liar. Hates humanity. Is Antichrist? Another question. All right. So I got some of it right. Uh, but I'm I'm a basic moron, and that's okay. We all got to start somewhere. If there's stuff you don't know, it's okay. You can always learn it. And my gut tells me I'm I'm not alone in all of my incorrect preconceived notions. Right? Right? I hope so. Please? Um, okay, it's time to settle in for this ride, folks, that I'm about to take you on. I'm going to tell you guys a little story I like to call, Huh? Where? Oh, where to begin? Satan is known by many names. Some people claim that he, Lucifer, the devil, and Beelzebub are one and the same. For our purposes today, he can't be Lucifer. And he cannot be Beelzebub. Because we already established Bashizi. And big frickin' shocker, Lucifer is up next. The word Satan, yes, word, not name, Satan, originates in Jewish demonology, and it means adversary. Elaine Pagels describes the role and term of early on Satan so very well in her book, The Origin of Satan. Please go get you a copy if you feel like having your eyes opened clockwork orange style forever and ever. In the 6th century BCE, the Israelite writers working on the Hebrew Bible knew that the Satan was a member of God's divine court. The Satan was an angel of superior intelligence and status. In that original Hebrew version, the Satan doesn't once appear as the leader of an evil army of demons making war against God or humanity, but instead appears in sections like the Book of Numbers and in Job as an obedient servant to God. Satan wasn't used as a proper noun to name anyone, but only as a descriptor of anyone being used in an adversarial role. For example, any one of the angels sent by God to earth for a specific purpose in order to block or oppose human plans and desires. Not necessarily out of any malevolence, but seemingly for the good of the human being obstructed 
in order to learn a valuable lesson, perhaps test one's faith or avoid some form of unforeseeable strife. In these early stories and versions, there just wasn't this duality of a giant battle between good and evil happening. All of the angels, all of the Satans were servants to God and there to challenge us, to obstruct, to try and make us better. In the story of Job, when the Satan is sent by God to put Job's faith to the test by taking everything he has in wealth and property, slaughtering his livestock and killing his children. What a lovely story. Job remains faithful. So the Satan asks God for permission to up the ante. God says, yes, just don't kill him. And so the Satan does just that, everything short of killing him. And Job retains his faith. It is at that point God says, see, told you he was a good and loyal little subject. And the Satan retreats. But you can see God works with the Satan, with his angel. Now, starting around 550 BCE, other biblical writers started to play around with the term Satan, and that's probably a likely origin for it becoming a proper noun rather than simply a description of someone performing a task. And people's interpretations and translations and different versions and word of mouth throughout history, and here we are still using it in present day. So anyway, as I understand it, it is from circa 550 BCE that the idea of Satan starts taking on a bit of a darker shade. He is referred to as the liar, the angel of the bottomless pit, and the enemy. And I don't think I mentioned this yet, but Satan's primary deadly sin is wrath. Okay, one last demon prince of hell. Kind of a big deal kind of already gave it away. That's right, Lucifer himself. Lucifer, as I've mentioned previously, proudly retains the deadly sin of pride. But of course. Have you guys seen the TV series with Tom Ellis and uh, Lauren G German? That was her name. So good. So good. Now that I'm going through all of this information, I'm going to have to go rewatch it. I'm sure I missed a lot, but I thought even just going through it with my minimal knowledge that it was really impressive how they were able to like, you know, interweave like a like a buddy comedy love story with accurate from what I knew from what I understood accurate biblical information. Very good. Very cool. I recommend. Okay. So with all that I have said about Satan and be shizzle. And if we are carrying on through this current information under the impression that they are not all one and the same, what is there left to say about Lucifer, the angel himself? Surprisingly, quite a bit. He has certainly come to be known as one of the most recognizable names in our knowledge of all things God and angels, forever the archangel who fell from heaven because he did not want to bow to God's creation, the human arguably one of the most hated villains of Christianity. From the writing of the Bible up through to our modern times, 
countless films and characters and stories written about this very prince of darkness, the epitome of evil itself, the prideful one, the devil, when it is detrimental to one's sanctity, one's sanity, the fate of one's very soul itself relies on not uttering his name. Hold up. Um, are you guys aware that Lucifer is only mentioned once in the entire Bible? That can't be right. Hmm. Hmm. Well, I'll be damned. Look at that. And only in some versions, too. Huh. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? One little excerpt. Not necessarily mistranslated, but definitely misconstrued over and over. Misappropriated. Misunderstood. I will include the links for the books and websites I am using for the following information, as I already know I cannot include it all. So, if anyone listening would like to learn more about Lucifer and this character's origins and his actual place in our modern mythology, specifically get you copies of Michelle Belanger's Dictionary of Demons, Rosemary Ellen Guiley's Encyclopedia of Demons and Demonology, Mentioned it before, I will mention it again, Elaine Pagel's The Origin of Satan. And do take a look online at, that, uh, at the wiki page for Lucifer in Folklore. You'll find links to all of those in the show notes. With that, let's dive in. So, there's a couple things happening here that ultimately result in Lucifer, the fallen angel, being tied to status of devil and Satan. Though we are going to keep in mind that Satan and Lucifer are considered two separate demonic entities in Christian demonology and Binsfeld's list of hell's princes. The first part is a very, very old motif of a fall from heaven. This is intimately tied to the physical motions of Venus through the sky. Venus, also known early on as the morning star, was often personified as various gods and goddesses throughout ancient religions and mythologies. Not unexpected. Everything seemed to be interwoven with some god and some story in order to explain the world around them at the time, right? Straight from the Wikipedia. In ancient Canaanite religion, the morning star is personified as the god Atar, who attempted to occupy the throne of Baal, and finding he was unable to do so, descended and ruled the underworld. In a Babylonian myth, Atana was led by his pride to strive for the highest seat among the star gods on the northern mountain of the gods, but was hurled down by the supreme ruler of the Babylonian Olympus. In classical Greek mythology, they called Venus Phosphorus, or the morning star. And in Roman folklore, their term for the planet Venus was Lucifer, which is Latin for light-bearing or light-bringer. In these classical mythologies, Venus, the morning star, was personified as a male figure bearing a torch and heralding in the dawn, or in some versions was the son of the goddess Aurora, who was the dawn. So, 
How did we get from a Latin word that simply meant light bearing and a story people of years past told of how dawn comes to be every day to Lucifer is the devil and the devil made me do it? How? Well, the devil's in the details and the details get a little twisty in the second part that is taking place here. Humor me briefly as I relay this quick lesson in recent religion's history. Judaism began more or less around 500 BCE. Christianity would be born when it split off from Judaism and formed their own religion uh, about 600 years later. In the interim, as they were transitioning, there would be a few different biblical texts and manuscripts floating around that would be considered apocryphal by the Roman Catholic Church. In the year 382, so very, very early on, St. Jerome would be asked by the Pope to bring some kind of order to the chaos that was this proliferation of various scripts, Hebrew manuscripts, and, and old Latin biblical texts that were still in circulation at that time. So he was like, sure thing, Pope, I got you. And he wrote what is known as the Latin Vulgate version of the Bible. Now, at the time that Jerome translated that little passage about Lucifer and a fall from the heavens, he was translating it from the Hebrew word Hillel, which meant shining one or son of the morning, again with the Venus mythology. So up to that point, Lucifer in itself was not a proper noun. It was still referencing an astronomical body. Jerome literally chose the word Lucifer because it was the closest meaning word in Latin, which, as you recall, meant light-bearing, light-bringer, morning star. In fact, though many biblical scholars agree that that passage is actually a taunt to a fallen Babylonian king by comparing him to the state and stature of Venus but calling him just a man, in later readings of that passage, that translation of Lucifer would be interpreted as an actual name and start to be considered the fallen angel and interchangeable with Satan and the devil. It certainly wouldn't help that powerful and public voices at the time and over the course of the Bible's early evolution equated the name Lucifer with that of Satan and the devil. These included early church fathers in the 2nd and 3rd century, Dante's Inferno, which was written in 1320, the King James Version, written in 1611, uh, that would cement Lucifer's fate, and Paradise Lost, which was written in 1667, which would further the legacy in what would ultimately be modern-day Christianity. By the time the King James Version was written, it would have been a simple choice to translate the Latin word Lucifer into the English term or terms for this, which again would be morning star, light bringer, etc., etc., which almost all English versions have done since. But instead, since the connection had already been well established by this time, since the Middle Ages between Lucifer the fallen angel, Satan and the devil, they simply slid that descriptor noun over into proper noun territory, permanently making it an actual name. Also, Lucifer is most powerful on Monday mornings. There was never going to be a good time to throw that in there. So there you go. The end.
That is going to wrap our exploration of differing demon types and some standout characters. Thank you for hanging in there with me for part two on this stuff. I know it was a lot and we went deep, but if you're still here listening, that says to me that you wanted to know this stuff, you're in it to win it with me. And you are now all the more prepared and better able to appreciate the exorcism and possession stuff we've got coming up next, y'all. Um, I'm not going to call it fun to learn the info that is coming up, as I know it goes damn dark and lives have been lost. It is serious stuff. But it is an interesting subject to learn about in itself and certainly a fascinating integral aspect of the demonic if you found these last couple of history-based, fundamental, thick, foundational episodes good, and you appreciate the research that goes into such stuff, please give the show a rating and review. Me and my bleeding eyeballs and suffering relationships all appreciate it more than you know. If you haven't already and wish to stay alerted to the ongoing season, any new episode announcements, and for some reason nowadays more pictures of my ugly mug, um, go follow the show over on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. All that. Uh, let's wrap this Leviathan of a lesson up. Eh? Oh, see what I did there? Eh? No? Okay. Time for a final note. I'm curious... If any of you were unnerved by the naming of names in this whole two-part episode, I keep reading about that being a big deal to a ton of people, but personally not really understanding why it's still that big of a deal. In any case, I hope I didn't make anyone feel like their soul was in immediate peril by doing so. I can imagine some might have felt unnerved or uncomfortable to have the ultimate villains, Satan, Beelzebub, friggin' Lucifer, deconstructed right before your eyes. It would be a similar effect, I think, as meeting your hero in real life. They say you shouldn't do it because then you see them for who they really are. I consider it a good thing and an educational success if that was the case today. You know what caught me a little off guard, a bit unawares? The fact that there are people who spend their time figuring out how to have sex with demons. Again, I am not judging anyone. I'm just surprised. I'm surprised. I just didn't know it was a thing. That's all. That's all. I, I thought we were supposed to be afraid of them. That's all. My bad. I'm learning just like everyone else. Now that we are all on the same page, let's turn it to another page we all most likely share. It is largely an unspoken concept held here by a silent majority. No matter your background, upbringing, region, gender, anything like that. The concept that continues to go unspoken but accepted by so many has to do with the devil. Because we will not have quite the opportunity to talk about this anywhere else, let's do so now, as I'm already guessing, I will be circling back to this come finale time. The concept is this. Is a demon's existence solely reliant on the existence of a devil? Or can the two be mutually exclusive? Furthermore, if demons are real, 
does that necessarily mean the devil must be real as well? Or could a demon be its very own class of entity, misidentified throughout time, devil or not? I know if I have any Christians listening who very much believe in the history laid out in the Bible, then of course, you might say there can be no demons without a devil. They were fellow fallen angels. That's the story. But I realized going through this literature that my biggest issue that I was having with the idea of a demon was having to also buy the very common belief they were fallen angels because that would automatically mean that the devil was real. And if the devil is real, then hell is real. Therefore, heaven is real. And therefore, God is real, yada, yada, yada. And, and you know what? I'm, I'm just nowhere near ready to jump on that gigantic bandwagon or, or any bandwagon. It's a fine line having to tread carefully through this subject without tipping face first into the religious fear-based take on this entity and not completely falling ass-end backwards into a cynical denial of this entity's existence simply because I have a bias and don't buy its origin story from the Bible. But if we could study this entity independent of dogma or preconceived notions taken only within the context of its reported encounters or its role in possessions or its appearance and reported disappearance during exorcisms, if we could treat this entity like we do any other entity that we don't understand, unconfined by some predestiny already laid out in a book, we could have one hell of an understanding of this critter come the end of the season. Yes, I did just call demons critters. It was a spur-of-the-moment choice. I'm so curious what else we might come to understand about this entity as we continue. And even if there is still reason to be so afraid. Stay safe, keep the nightlight on, and sleep with one eye open.